Recovery Elevator, episode 101. What I what I did that, that night that I had the last drink is something that I don't want to define me. And right now it does. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for 28 months and two weeks. On today's podcast, we've got Eric. He's 31 years old. He says desperation was a gift, and he's been sober for 67 days. Before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in Recovery Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Okay, let's get started. A lot of this podcast is geared toward how to quit drinking and how to live a successful life without alcohol. But let's dig a little deeper and find out what alcohol really is. Now you can go to Recovery Elevator episode 101 and find a link to the book Beyond the Influence by Catherine Ketchum to where I got all this information. And I read this book for the first time on January 1st, 2010 in a comfortable chair in Barnes & Noble in Northgate Mall, Seattle, listening to the Owl City soundtrack, which seemed to be the Barnes & Noble soundtrack for about two years. So what is alcohol? Alcohol is a simple chemical, but its effects on the body are extraordinarily complex and highly individual, which means that it affects everybody different. So what are the actions of alcohol? What exactly is alcohol? Well, in short, it's yeast poop. Yeah, yeast dung. When yeast, which is a microorganism that evolved around 200 million years ago, encounters the water and plant sugars and fruits, berries and grains, something very interesting happens. This is a process called fermentation. So then the yeast releases an enzyme that converts the sugars into carbon dioxide, CO2, and ethanol. And this is more commonly known as alcohol after a couple additives are added. This is still a simple one-celled organism. And the simple one-celled organism yeast doesn't know when to call it quits and continues to produce alcohol until it expires. Expiring meaning death. Yeah, the very first victim of this potent drug called alcohol is actually the yeast itself. That would be yeast getting alcohol poisoning from the product that it's creating. Nice job, yeast. Because most strains of yeast cannot survive an alcohol concentration much above 14%, naturally fermented wines generally contain between 10 and 14% of alcohol. In beer, which is made from barley, corn, rice, wheat, or other cereal grains, brewers artificially halt the fermentation process somewhere between 3 and 6% of alcohol. Malt liquors, and my favorite was King Cobra, are allowed to ferment a little longer, and sometimes they contain up to 10% of alcohol or more. How long have human beings been drinking alcohol? Well, human beings have been drinking beer for almost 7,000 years and wine for approximately 5,000 years. Around AD 800, Arabian chemists figured out how to overcome yeast's natural limitations by boiling alcohol away from its sugar bath and condensing it into pure alcohol. 
Because pure alcohol isn't very appetizing, neither is any alcohol, especially Bud Light Lime, chemists use it in the laboratory as a solvent, an extracting agent, a fuel, and the starting material for the production of acetic acid, lacquers, varnishes, and dyes. Yeah, you heard that right. Alcohol is used in lacquer, varnishes, and dyes. That's the stuff we drink. What distillers then do to this stuff, they dilute these spirits with water and other items. While various additives and congeners are generally used in such minuscule amounts that they are considered harmless, some experts believe that severe hangovers, headaches, aggressive or violent behavior, and various medical complications may be caused by an individual's unique possible allergic reaction to one or more of these substances that are added to you know, alcohol, gin, tequila, all that stuff, really to make it palatable and to make sure it's not a lacquer, a varnish, or a dye. So what happens to alcohol when we take that sip? When you drink a glass of beer or wine or mixed drink, alcohol travels down the esophagus directly into the stomach. Because alcohol is a very small molecule, it's really only just two and a half times the weight of water, it requires little or no preliminary enzyme activity, and passes directly through cell membranes. In contrast, a starch molecule can weigh 250,000 times as much as one single alcohol molecule, and the starch molecule can require a three to four hours in a rich stew of stomach acids and pancreatic enzymes before it can be broken down into smaller molecules that can be then absorbed into the bloodstream. Alcohol, since it's so light, can be absorbed almost instantly we take it into our mouth. It can go in our tongue, the lining of the cheeks, down the esophagus, it can be absorbed into the bloodstream that way, an extremely lightweight molecule. So where does most of the absorption take place? Five to 10% of the alcohol you drink is absorbed into the bloodstream through the lining of the mouth and esophagus. Approximately 20% is absorbed into the bloodstream through the stomach. The remaining 70 to 75% is absorbed through the walls of the small intestine. Let's talk about body fat for a second. Alcohol does not dissolve as readily in fat as it does in water, muscle, or bone. Alcohol is a polar molecule, meaning one end is positively charged and the other end is negatively charged. Great, still have no idea what that means, but it easily dissolves in other polar substances such as water. Fat, on the other hand, is nonpolar and alcohol has a difficult time getting into fatty tissues. So more of it will remain in your bloodstream. So as a result, the greater amount of body fat you have, the higher your BAC will be. Interesting. This sounds to me like a paradox. The more you drink, the more likely it is to have a beer gut. The more fat you have in your beer gut, the higher your BAC will be, quickly accelerating the wheels coming off process. Now let's talk about gender for a second. Even if a man and woman weigh the same and drink the same amount, the woman will have a higher BAC for two basic reasons. First, women have a smaller amount of body water to dilute the alcohol. Women also tend to have a higher percentage of body fat, as I just explained. Now, how does alcohol affect us as we age? So body fat typically increases with age while enzyme actions in our bodies tend to slow down as we get older. As a result, a few drinks will hit us harder at the age of 60 than it will at the age of 30, 20, at 18, or at 13 when I had my first drink. I always found that when I drank on an empty stomach, I became tuned up rather fast. If you eat when you drink, alcohol mixes in with more complex food molecules, which slows down the rate at which the stomach's contents empty into the small intestines. Since 70 to 75% of alcohol is absorbed through the small intestines, this delay results in a slower rise in blood alcohol concentration. If on the other hand, you drink on an empty stomach, which is like the 5 p.m. happy hour thing, the process of absorption is faster because there are fewer competing food molecules and circulating enzymes in the stomach to slow down the absorption process. 
As a result, alcohol is released immediately into the small intestines, where it is rapidly absorbed into the bloodstream. In one study, subjects who drank alcohol after a meal that included fat, protein, and carbohydrates absorbed the alcohol about three times more slowly than when they consumed alcohol on an empty stomach. Wow, three times slower than on an empty stomach. Let's talk about what alcohol does to our emotional state. Hmm, I experienced a lot of anxiety when I drank alcohol. So, anxiety, fear, anger, stress, and fatigue signal the body to release the hormone epinephrine, adrenaline. Adrenaline mobilizes fats and glycogen, the body's primary source of sugar, for energy use, which then diverts blood flow away from the stomach and intestines into the skeletal muscles. This reduced blood flow will slow down the process of alcohol absorption. However, chronic and intense emotional states may have the opposite effect, damaging the stomach and intestines and thereby speeding up absorption. Basically, when we drink, it signals the body to release epinephrine, adrenaline, artificially, when we really shouldn't be doing that. That thus increases anxiety, fear, anger, stress, and fatigue. Alcohol equals no bueno on the adrenal glands. Let's talk about alcohol and the strength of a drink. The stronger a drink is, that is, the more alcohol it contains, the greater the amount of alcohol that will get into your bloodstream. In distilled spirits, scotch whiskey, gin, vodka, etc., the alcohol molecules make up a much larger percentage of the total volume. In addition, most distilled liquors do not contain significant amount of complex sugars or carbohydrates which are present in wine and beer and help slow down absorption through the stomach and intestines. This explains why a 2-ounce martini, which consists of approximately 35 to 40% of pure alcohol, is absorbed more rapidly than a 4-ounce glass of Chablis, which contains approximately 12% of alcohol. Carbonation. Carbonated alcoholic beverages such as champagne, wine spritzers, scotch, and sodas will get you drunk faster than a drink such as wine. Reason why? The carbonated bubbles irritate the pylorus, which is the ring of the muscle that serves as a gate between the stomach and small intestines. The pylorus opens up prematurely to empty the stomach contents into the small intestines from which alcohol is absorbed quickly into the bloodstream, which we just previously discussed. Boom, shut the book. That's alcohol in a nutshell. My takeaway from that is yeast dies when it makes alcohol. The alcohol's first victim is actually the yeast. I love it. So there is some knowledge about alcohol itself and what it does. Knowledge is not power unless we do something with it. If you are still drinking, some of that stuff can be pretty helpful to mitigate a high BAC level and might also explain some things. Okay, now let's hear from our interviewee, Eric. Eric, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Paul? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for asking. Eric, let's get right into this. When was your last drink? Well, today is 67 days since my last drink. Boom. Nice job, Eric. How's that feel? Feels pretty good most days. Definitely much better than it used to. <laughs> I think the key word I heard there was most days. It's not like this uh, yeah. you know, unrealistic picture. You quit drinking successfully. It's just all roses. Uh, we'll get more into that later. But let's learn more about you, Eric. Give listeners some insight about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. You know, How old are you? Do you have a family? And what are some things you like to do in your free time? All right. Well, I'm 31. I was born up north in New Jersey, actually, but I've lived in Dallas since I was, I think, 15. I play music and teach lessons for a living. I live with my parents, actually. I think that's some of that probably is a symptom and or cause of some of my problems with substances. Hey, man, I had a good, like, four years with my parents in my 20s, so, dude, don't worry about it, and and early 30s, so no worries there, dude. It's awesome. (laughs) 
No, I actually appreciate it. My mom's got, my mom was recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So it's actually kind of probably been good that I've been living at home while they've been gearing up for kind of transition into the next phase of their lives. So in some ways it's been a blessing, but yeah, I don't know. Definitely kind of anxious in a lot of other ways to get moving on with my life. Sure. And what are some things you like to do for fun? Well, other than music, I enjoy, I like cooking a lot. I've been pretty diligent about exercise and not just since I got sober, but probably since, I don't know, two, three months before that happened, I've been trying to get pretty diligent about taking care of myself. I kind of let myself go for a few years there. So two questions. What's yeah. your favorite dish to cook? And if you, what's your workout going to be today or tomorrow, your next workout? Let's see. Favorite dish. I don't know. I like doing like cold pasta dishes for some reason. So like bow tie pasta, fresh mozzarella, basil, a little bit of lemon juice and olive oil. I mean, it's simple, but I really like that kind of dish. Would ramen noodles and cold water count? I do that too when I'm not <laughs> feeling the energy, but you know. Gotcha. Uh, and how about your workout? <laughs> Let's see. I've been feeling a little under the weather the last week. So like I ran a mile yesterday, but that's the first thing I've done in, in probably about five or six days. I think today probably I'll try to do like an all around resistance workout just to kind of get the wheels moving again, you know? Yeah, I hear you a hundred percent. Now you're 31 years old. You've been sober for 67 days. Again, congratulations. That's huge. When did you first start to observe your own drinking patterns and say, wait a second, maybe I'm not drinking like a normal person. Yeah, well, I probably started to notice like around the time I, I finished college or maybe shortly thereafter. I had a couple of issues, wrecked some cars, you know, got arrested for public intoxication, which the only reason that wasn't a DWI is because my car wasn't on when they came to get me. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> or when they, when, they, when they found me and they knew the car had been there overnight. And then I had a DWI after I moved back home, which also involved a wrecked car. So like somewhere in there, it was definitely becoming clear, like there are consequences that you can't like just brush them aside or, you know, brush them under the carpet. But, you know, for whatever reason, I still did. And so it, it took a while after that DWI with the wreck. That's when I got into the program the first time. But it took a while after that, too. Like it wasn't it wasn't right away before I stopped drinking. Eric, you said DWI and you said living with your parents earlier, this pit in my stomach just instantly formed right about five days after I graduated college. I moved in with my family and I got a DUI, which eventually got thrown out because the officer wrote the wrong date. It was at the end of the year. But I remember walking down the stairs the next morning and just telling my parents, you know, you just graduated college, you got your whole life ahead of you. And five days after that, hey, mom, dad, I got a DUI last night. It was miserable and they were not happy at all. So I know that feeling is terrible. And, and so after those occasions, did you ever try to perhaps monitor your drinking and put some rules into place? You know, I've never been great with, with doing like kind of the hard rules, I guess. Wait, like great at putting them in place or, or great following them? Because I don't think anybody's been great at following them that's been on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Even putting them in place for the most part, trying to think, let's see, when I was on probation for that DWI, I had the ignition interlock, like the breathalyzer on my car. Okay. And I was aware of what the threshold was for, for, for the alcohol reading on that. And before I had actually stopped drinking, you know, I tried to, I tried to play with the rules on that a little bit. 
I kind of used a blood alcohol content calculator to figure out how many drinks I could have. And of course that didn't pan out. You overblew once or twice? Violate, Is that what you're saying? I overblew pro- probably like three times, I think. Oh, it's probably just like a slap correctly. on the wrist, right? And they so probably like, just send you a text yeah, message. Like, it shows up immediately. I didn't get a call from my PO, but like, I think after the third one was when I was like, all right, this is enough. And that's, that's when I, I stopped drinking the, the first time. I think after like the third or fourth one, I was like, all right, this, I know this is going to bring me consequences. So I needed to just cut it out. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, around that same time, like I switched to O'Doul's and non-alcoholic beer because I thought that would help me like beat the interlock and all of that stuff. I've always been more of a binge drinker though. So like it, it's a problem of like, I, I can't stop once I start really. It, stopping hasn't really been that much of an issue as far as like altogether. Like when I'm, when I'm motivated not to drink at all, picking up that first drink hasn't really been too much of an issue so far. But once, once I get that one in me, all bets are off. Eric, you and I are the same guy with that. I found it, it was a heck of a lot easier for me to just say no to the first one than have one and shut it down because that for me was like fighting gravity, you know, trying to jump yeah. up and, and grab a 10-foot rim. That, that's never going to happen in my life and never has. But yeah, following those rules in place, it was like fighting gravity for me. Now let's go back to 2013. You said you were sober for a little bit of time. And then what happened after you got off probation? You said you went back out there. I don't know if I have a real clear memory of how this all happened, but we rarely I do. Off, <laughs> I, I got off probation. And I, I mean, the whole time I was on there, I kind of had this mentality. Like I being on papers, I know it's not this way for everyone, but for a lot of us, like that puts a deadline on your sobriety. Even if you have the best intentions going in, like it gives you a date that, <laughs> that you can kind of go, all right, I just got to get through that and then I'm good, which in some ways may be good. But for me, like I got off and it was probably about a month or two after that when I'm, I'm kind of making some assumptions about what probably happened, but I, I, I'm i pretty sure like I probably just passed a liquor store and I was like, eh, let's pick up a bottle of vodka and it'll be fine. You know, it, it sounds um, like your addiction got the best of you. You're driving and your your unconscious mind was just like, hey, Eric, we, we've we been sober for a couple months. We we did our requirements. We are freaking cured, man. Let's do this. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really exactly what happened. And, and the next two, two and a half, three years went by without any of the same consequences I had leading up to the last time. You know, no DWIs or anything like that. Certainly some stuff in retrospect that, you know, I know were unhealthy habits or symptoms of an unhealthy relationship with with alcohol but you know it was very easy for me to go that entire two and a half three years with going like all right well nothing's happening or you know no real bad consequences are happening i must be all right yeah did you notice a progression with the drinking or did you drink did your drinking stay about the same i guess i did definitely do in retrospect and I think the the last like two or three months that I was out, I can see where it was starting to kind of snowball. I started I started noticing that I was I was I was starting to drive when I shouldn't again. I I was having like like I'm usually a pretty laid back, relaxed person, but I was I was seeing some anger and some rage kind of creep up in in there a little bit. Like I I think I cussed out a Denny's wait, waiter one time for for like overcharging the tip that I had written in or something. And that's like completely out of character for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, thing, things like that where like, where like I would, I would snap or cuss someone out and like, I'm not that guy normally. And like, I, you know, either I'd walk out five, five minutes later or the next, or the next morning and be like, what? That's not me. And 
and um, I want to comment on something you said. Looking back in hindsight, one of the most dangerous things about alcohol is the progression of how slowly it kills people. Because 10 years can go by, but then if you stand there and look and you graph it in your mind, you're like, oh, yeah, wait a second. Yeah, I'm drinking 30 beers a day, where 10 years ago I was drinking 15 beers a day. And that's one of the most dangerous parts about alcohol. And with other drugs like heroin or meth, yeah, the wheels come off way faster than alcohol, which is one of the dangerous things because our memory, the memories go away faster and our memories can remember it. That's the incredible short memory, the ism component. And now let's talk about the wedding. And you, you, you mentioned the rage stuff. Um, uh, listeners, I got an email from Eric. Talk about shredding the shame. He sent an awesome photo when he was 36 days sober, him with his beautiful dog. But in this email was a story about him and a wedding. Tell me more about that, Eric. All right. So uh, this is one of my best friends. He was getting married. I was supposed to meet the groomsmen or the groom's party at his house like early in the afternoon, the, the day of the wedding, so we could get, you know, get dressed and, you know, get ready to head to the hotel where the wedding was being held. Now, I'm a music teacher, and I had to run a show for a group of my students that morning. I let the groom know I was going to be running late. wasn't really an issue, but my show did kind of, like, run into some issues. The venue forgot that they booked the date, and so, like, I show up with some of the people I teach with, and fortunately... One of the barbacks happened to be there showing up to get, like, get some cleaning done. And, and he, you know, he, he got a hold of the manager. But the, the only, like, the house sound guy was, was also getting married that day. So the venue was completely unprepared to run this, to run this show. And so I knew I was going to be running behind going in. And then all of a sudden we get this setback that, that pretty much pushes me back probably in, like, another hour. So I'm getting stressed out, trying to keep things cool with my students and their sure. parents, all of that stuff. I've also probably been amped up on either an energy drink or coffee and, you know, just knowing that it's going to be one of those long days. So by the time I get everything done with my, with my group, I'm running, like I said, probably an hour behind. Yeah. I feel pretty guilty and stressed, but honestly, the reality of I'm, I'm pretty much walking into a situation where the groomsmen are hanging out, you know, having a drink, getting dressed. You know, it's not really that big of a deal, but in sure. my, I made it a big deal in my mind. Yeah, you're um, thinking like this is the last time I'm going to see my my best friend's groomsmen getting dressed. Yeah, it's just a beautiful moment, I guess. <laughs> right, and so like like when I got to his house, I didn't I don't think I even said hi to more than one or two people before I headed to the bar at at my friend's house and poured a glass of scotch, and that just like set the whole day in motion. Before the service started, I, I probably had a few more scotches, probably some beer too. And this whole time, I think I had maybe eaten like a slice or two of pizza. I ended up being late to the photos for the wedding party, kind of stumbled over myself walking in at the beginning of the service. And then like the, the bridesmaid that I was paired up with kind of made a comment about my being late to the photos during the reception. And I think it was probably made in good jest and it was probably well-deserved. And I don't think she really like gave much thought to it or really intended it to be mean or anything, but like it kind of just ate at me for the rest of the night. So I'm throwing back more beer, more liquor, probably some wine. I don't know throughout the reception. And then there's an after party at the hotel bar. And I'm pretty sure I had at least two martinis, which like even at the top of my tolerance, that's like enough to send me into a blackout some nights. Sure. Just just two martinis. So the last memory I really have, concrete-wise anyway, like I'm, was during the after party, I'm kind of like gushing at the 
the bride's dad about how happy I was for them and saying goodbye to some friends as they left. So pretty much after that, it's blackout. And I'm not really sure how much of that I was awake for. I don't know how long this period of time was, but the next memory I have, basically, I'm standing out on the sidewalk in front of the hotel, and I'm looking at another one of my best friends in the face, and he's got a bloody nose, and his wife is yelling at me. <laughs> you're, yeah. You're like, first the Denny's waiter, and now this? It's on. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, like I'm, I'm looking at this, and like I don't really know what happened, but I know it's my fault. Sure. Fortunately, one of my other friends drove me to his place that night, but like I really just have a couple burned-in images. Basically, I didn't, I didn't really know what happened at all. And let's see, I just knew like when I woke up, I was, I was pretty disgusted with myself. I've had to learn the rest of this basically from people who have talked to, you know, this friend that had a bloody nose. So I went into the I went into the night knowing I'd probably get drunk. I didn't drive. I figured I'd probably Uber home, but I really didn't like didn't really set any plan in place, which that in and of itself is pretty irresponsible. But this, this guy that I gave a bloody nose, he's been one of my best friends for 15 years. I was actually best man at his wedding a couple of years ago. Oh wow! And so the way I understand it is, he offered to drive me home. And when we got to his car, he asked for my address to type into his GPS. And I guess I was so drunk that I couldn't like answer him or I wasn't speaking straight or, you know, I'm not sure. So he made, he made fun of me for this and I guess it just hit that rage nerve. And, and that's what Ben's I, uh, best friends are supposed to do. They're supposed to call us out on this stuff and make fun of us. Right. Yeah. That's kind of the sense of humor this guy has like it like i've known him for 15 years this shouldn't have been any big deal but you know for whatever reason it, it made me snap so i get up the next morning like i mean i've definitely had my share of depression i've i've probably had suicidal thoughts throughout but i've never like really even come close to acting on it and when i got up the next morning i legitimately didn't know if i was going to make it to go to bed it was it was pretty bad but the haze starts to lift. I kind of like reached out to a couple of people that I figured probably would have gotten some kind of news about what happened and started piecing the night together and realized that I couldn't, I just couldn't live with myself if I didn't make some, some real serious changes. So um, I talked to some friends, talked to my dad and reached out to some guys that I knew from the last time that I was sober. And it kind of just helped me get plugged back in and I've been sober since. Man, I can kind of relate to that wedding story. I I, I got a well-deserved black eye at my best friend's bachelor party. And, oh, uh, man. Yeah, this was actually from one of the bouncers of, of uh, the, the women who were doing, you know, maybe some exotic dancing. I don't, I don't remember exactly too clear, of course. But, yeah, I mean, it was like kind of a funny story. And, and, and now it's hilarious. But the day of the wedding, you know, all the bridesmaids were sitting in the chairs getting their makeup done, their hair done. And I'm in the chair at the end getting my black eye covered up with base foundation and probably some mascara. I've, I have no idea. But, yeah, you look in the photos and they did, the makeup woman it probably got a big tip because you can't really see. But still, you can see, like, my eye is swollen. And you just see the look on my face. I'm like, man, I am so glad I'm not there. Again, it's a pretty funny story now, but really nobody was too pleased with me the day of. So I, I can kind of relate to you on that one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough spot to be in. It's not... It's not pleasant, that's for sure. Yeah, and so let's talk about 67 days ago. How did you do it? Well, like I said, I reached out to some people that I had kind of had 
become acquainted with or, or become friends with even the last time I got sober. I mean, that first day was pretty miserable. I was crying a lot, definitely hung over, had a lot of physical symptoms of, you know, come down and withdraw. But pretty much by the by that first evening and especially the second and third day, I, I kicked things off. I got it I got into meetings, you know, started started working some steps with uh with a sponsor. Haven't really had a whole lot as far as like physical cravings since even the mental part, like the pain is even 67 days later, the pain is so fresh from that, that like I don't have any desire really to touch a drink at the moment. Sure. You know, the emotional one's pretty complex. I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm really addressing your question. But. Absolutely. 100%. What, I, what I'm hearing is you had an experience. The bottom is what you know, we would call it. And the pain points were strong enough forcing you to create a change is what you did. You went to, I think, a day 36 days. You had 44 meetings under your belt. You got a sponsor, man. I mean, usually people just like start dipping you know, toes, not like just jump in the whole lake of 12-step of meetings. And, and you just jumped in and got a sponsor. Uh, yeah, that you're, you're answering yeah. the question perfectly. And, you know, I think regardless of what my intentions were last time I, I got sober, I think that that time really kind of helped me lock some things in place this time to, to make things work. And who knows if it works this time. I'm hoping it does. But like, you know, it, it really helped me kind of like get past that. Like, what do I do? Is, is this where I need to be? Like, it was like, no, this is what I need to do. Let's, let's just reach out to everybody, figure out whatever resources I can get a hold of. And I mean, that's pretty much, that's pretty much how my day goes these days. Like, I mean, I obviously I work, I think I said earlier, like I play music, which, which means I'm around alcohol a lot, but most of my other, most of my other activities around the day are centered around either, either recovering or at least like improving my well-being in some way or another. Yeah. You're probably not playing rock shows at a bar at 2 PM. A couple of takeaways on that is, you know, you're like, you're like, hope, hopefully it sticks at day 67. Well, I got good news for you. You don't even need to worry about that. Who really cares if it sticks or not? All you got to care about is to get day 67 in your, in your, in your pocket and then day 68 tomorrow. That's, that's really it. And I get a lot of emails from people, you know, I kind of asking for advice, like, Hey, what do I do? And, and the thing that I've been starting to type lately is exactly what you did, Eric, is you're going to have to start doing things that you don't want to do because you know, when we first want to get sober, we think it's just like, well, I'm just going to not drink. Well, that didn't work. Well, I'm going to put these, you know, I'm going to put rules in place. Well, that didn't work. It's like we're fighting gravity. And then you get to the point where it was the gift of desperation is what you said in my email. I want to talk about that in just a second. But you get to the point where you're going to have to start doing things you don't want to do. I didn't want to get a sponsor. I didn't want to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I didn't, I didn't want to do any of this stuff. I didn't want to you know, put in the hard work, wake up at 5 a.m. every day, keep my schedule for, for seven days a week. I was getting up at 5. I was getting up like 5.15 on Saturdays and Sunday in the morning all because I wanted to stay sober. That's all the shit that I did not want to do. And talk to me about the gift of desperation because that's what I had. I was so desperate to quit drinking. I was willing to do anything necessary to quit drinking, including do a podcast on it. Yeah, and and I really admire you for that. And I'm very grateful for it. I think I've I've listened to most most, if not all, of what you put out. But yeah, desperation. I have no idea if I'm ever gonna be able to fix the friendships that I messed up especially that night. But, you know, I think there's been more damage along the way that has been a little less obvious. I do know that the feeling that I had that next day is something I don't really ever want to experience again. 
what I what I did that that night that I had the last drinks is something that I don't want to define me, and right now it does. Yeah, I I don't think I could live with myself if if I didn't make some serious changes after after something like that. And Eric, the pain is going to keep us sober for a short period of time, and it's it's got you sixty seven days. But um, um, you know, what what what's your plan moving forward in recovery? Well. You know, I am working a program. Obviously, that's working for me. I can't, you know, you know, every every person is going to be different. You have to decide if that's if that's the right way to go for you. But for me, hitting meetings, meditating, that's that's all what's working working well. I'm hoping I can that eventually I can get through my program to the point where I can start repairing some of this damage. Who knows if, if all of it's repairable? But I would really like to at least make an attempt and kind of move on, like get you know, get my life on more solid, solid footing, hopefully move out of my parents' house. That's kind of the plan. I, I, I mean, I got out of more kind of conventional career paths, which has been good for my mental well-being, but it also kind of creates this, this financial stagnation that, you know, coupled with, with, with a disease like alcoholism kind of makes it hard to move forward sometimes. So if, if I can deal with the substance end and then move forward with the other part of it, it kind of makes the whole package work a little bit better, I think. Well, I think you you just you just nailed it right there, though. Is really only focus on this one thing at one time, and I, I can almost guarantee you this, Eric. You focus on the alcohol thing, that other problem it'll solve itself. The financial stagnation component, you know, living yeah. and stuff that that'll go away. That'll solve itself. And, and Eric, we have reached. The rapid fire round. If we could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I am ready. Besides coming to in a blackout with your best friend looking at you with a bloody nose, what's your worst memory from drinking? Oh, man. I was going to use that as my answer. <laughs> I, I knew you were. Give me something else. <laughs> oh, man. The wrecked cars, man. I mean, there's three of them, actually, that I have. And that the, the calls to my parents from the scene of the accident or from inside jail. Um, I mean, that's just, uh, that's, you just feel terrible. And my parents really love me. They, they've taken, you know, they've really cared for me without, without condoning what I've done, but it's just the worst feeling to call them when you've messed up again. <laughs> yeah. Calls yeah. from the inside of the jail suck. I've made two of those. Those are never any fun. And next question, no. Eric, we've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating maybe I can't control my drinking? If you want an answer other than the the blackout, I think a couple of months ago, so I was playing a show in downtown Dallas and I knew I shouldn't be driving. And like I I have the I have this memory of signing my tab at the end of the night and like not really being able to write correctly, but I still drove home and when I got up the next morning it was like, dude, really? Like you've been through this. Come on. That was kind of at least this time around, that was probably that was probably where I would mark like the okay, this is getting out of control again, you know. Yep. The self loathing that starts that doesn't help anything, but it's still pretty hard not to do it. I've done yeah. the dude so many times, dude, Paul, come on. So many times. And next question, in regards to sobriety, what's your favorite resource? I mean, meetings work for me a lot. This podcast works. I, I just started in the share podcast and that's been helping a lot. And living sober has been helping a lot too. I haven't gotten too far with that, but I try to read a chapter every day or so. Oh, is, is that a book? That. It's and, a book, right? 
Living Sober, yeah, that was, I think it was put out in like the 70s, and it's, it's, who uh, wrote it? Conference approved. I, I don't actually know, but that's like, that's, I think that's AA conference approved okay. stuff, but it's usually more with like kind of the day to day stuff, whereas, where, like, it's less about the program and more about just kind of like the, these are the situations you'll find yourself in or the feelings that you'll have. This is what we found successful as far as dealing with some of that, you know? Gotcha. You know, it's kind of a bland title. Usually it's, you know, living sober with three granola bars a day or something like that. So gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Um, and next yeah. question, I'm going to couple these two together in regards to sobriety, Eric, what's the best advice you've ever received? And then what parting piece of advice do you have for listeners who are thinking about getting sober? Okay. I don't know if this goes down as advice, but, but definitely some insight. I, I've heard a lot, like you've been drinking for X amount of years. How long do you think it's going to take to fix those problems? You know, like this is, this is a, this is a process, you know, I can't just assume just because I quit drinking that, you know, my whole life is going to get better. It has improved. Don't get me wrong, but um, you know, you got to build upon things a day at a time pretty much, you know? Yeah. It sounds more like a reality check, um, which is very good advice. And then as far as like parting guidance, man, get busy, whether that's working a program, finding projects around the house, whatever, like if you're trying, if you're trying to get rid of a bad, a, you know, a habit or a substance or, or anything like that, like you're going to have to fill that part of your brain and that part of your time with something else. And I mean, I think the best ways have been to do something that gets out, outside of myself, do some service work go volunteer somewhere, but even taking on projects around the house, I just finished cleaning all the grout in my bathroom uh, and I'm getting ready to re-grout all of that stuff. Kind of like, like I said, I live with my parents and that my goal with that is kind of like, that'll be one of my contributions towards making the house marketable because uh, they do plan on moving out of the house and moving, moving up North eventually. So yeah, they gotta um, be stoked. You know, what's that? They got, they gotta be stoked cleaning the grout. That's huge. Yeah, yeah, and they didn't even have to ask me. I just ate all my parents' food when I was there. I didn't clean anything. (laughs) You know, little things like that, though. I I mean, it takes me, it takes me like 20, 30 minutes to clean a a little, like, you know, four or five square foot area of grout, and that eats up a ton of time, and it's productive, and it's doing something to, like, better my situation and my parents' situation. All of these little things, you know, staying busy. That that's really kind of the big the big thing for me. Staying busy and being of service. Oh yeah, I ate a lot of my parents' food and I drank all my dad's whiskey and alcohol. So if you're listening, Dad, which he does, my bad. I apologize. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, Mom too. Your Grey Goose vodka. I often replaced it with the vodka that comes uh, in a plastic bottle. S K O L. So Skull, I think that's what it was. Sorry, Mom and Dad. And before we depart, give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you use a BAC calculator to try to beat the breathalyzer on your car and still end up blowing over the threshold when you try to drive home. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I love it. Eric, thank you for shredding the shame, sending us in a sober selfie. I love it. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Spots are filling up fast for Camp Recovery Elevator August 24th to August 27th. Capacity is 30, and I think we've got 12 spots left. The price jumps up by $50 on March 1st, so go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash retreats. Reserve your spot now. I've had this written down in the corner of my whiteboard, and I forgot to mention it in several podcast episodes, 
But congratulations, Brandy, out in California for hitting one year of sobriety in December. That is awesome. Brandy has been with us since the start. You're an inspiration, Brandy. Keep moving forward and keep up the good work. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.